0: We're glad you're here with us this morning. My name is Pastor Milo again. It's great to have you here with us this morning. I'm going to start out today with a confession. I am a recovering cheapskate. Any other recovering cheapskates in the room? So here's the deal with us cheapskates. And so uh, I'm a sucker for the deal in the checkout line. Uh, That deal in the checkout line, because there's two candy bars for the price of one, looks pretty sweet. Like, I don't know if you're in the same uh, world that I'm in, but like, uh, feeling like you're getting a good deal or feeling like your dollar is going a little bit further can get you into all kinds of trouble. Myself uh, has come, and many times, is the form of really cheap Uh, hand tools instead of legitimate hand tools, and so uh, having just this cheap stuff that you're trying to do work with and the head of the hammer falls off because you paid $4 for the hammer, or just any of these type of things where you just got something really chintzy instead of something you actually should have spent money on. I've been known to buy my wife $21 gifts rather than spending $30 on one gift. So so feeling like, well, the quantity, this pile of garbage that I'm handing you is better than if I spend one gift and all got guys a little box or something to hand her, uh, I feel better about it for some reason. Uh, Cheapskates, we, we tend to uh, spend money on really unhealthy food, we spend money on really foolish things, all because we think uh, that we're saving money or have this really great deal for the moment, and at the end of the day, uh, it really isn't terribly helpful. So let me tell you a little story about being a cheapskate in regards to running a half marathon. So my first half marathon, we uh, as a family, something we like to do, my wife and I like to run together, that type of thing, and when I looked at the price tag, if you've looked at them recently, a, a half marathon or a marathon are usually $80, $100 up to $150 sometimes to go, and you're paying for the right to go run with 5,000 other people, wake up early in the morning and run around in a big circle and come back and you just forked over $100 to do it. Does that make sense to any of you cheapskates? didn't make any sense to me either. So what I decided to do is I was going to train with my wife uh, for this half marathon but it was on an early Sunday morning and so uh, I didn't want to take the time off of church either uh, that morning and so uh, what I decided to do is I was going to train with her and then run my own half marathon on Saturday and then she could go run her half marathon on Sunday so we could do it together. And so we also decided that because It is kind of difficult to shut down all traffic in all directions so that you can run yourself a half marathon. That I was going to go out in the country where we have a a family uh, home that we can go to and visit our family there, and I was going to run it out in the country. And So what ended up happening uh, was uh, there's no traffic, no problem, none of those things. But what you don't realize that you're paying for when you're paying for a half marathon, you're paying for a lot of other things. You're paying for porta-potties, you're paying for uh, water stations and food stations and, and little painted arrows on the road to tell you where to turn and where not to turn and, and mile markers to say you've gone 3 miles or 5 miles or 11 miles. All of those things are part of the package deal and a t-shirt. I didn't get a t-shirt out of mine either. All of that's kind of added together to be part of your experience. So what I did, I went out and ran my 13.2 miles, I was about 10 miles in. My phone on my battery had died, so I wasn't sure how far I had actually gone. I had a general idea of where I was because I knew where I lived, but I didn't know how far I still had to run to get back to where I was going. And the two water bottles that I had stationed at different points on the thing were not nearly enough water for what I needed. So at about 9 or 10, I couldn't tell you because I didn't have any way to tell you how far into the race I was, the race, me, uh, that I was. And so at about nine-ish miles, I feel like I'm going to die. I've been going up and down hills, running around corners, uh, and I need water beyond anything I could ever imagine at that point. I am sucking wind. I need water bad. And all I could think of is I am probably red in the face, sweat running down, and like salty sweat, nastiness, and I'm going to go knock on some country bumpkin's door, and they're going to meet me at the door with a shotgun and tell me to get lost. That's what's going through my mind as I'm running. You're not thinking cognitively. So as I'm running around this one corner, there's a really high bank. I see coming out of the bank, there is a pipe with water running out of it. And I thought to myself, God has provided a way. (laughs) And so I climbed down in the ditch and took a drink of this water, drank to my heart's content of the water that was coming out of this pipe. So I followed the road around, come back up the top of the hill, only to realize that there is a farm and a barnyard, and this is the water that's running across that, across the field, into the ditch, into my water supply. Do you think that that water may have been contaminated? That's some nasty, nasty water. And I, uh, I found out the results of drinking that water. Uh, after the fact. It is nasty stuff. So I've decided from this point on that paying for a half marathon isn't such a bad idea. This morning, if you've got your outline with you, uh, there's a white sheet of paper in there that's going to help you. First of all, on that white sheet of paper, there's also some prayer prompts for you, uh, for our team that's in the uh, Dominican Republic, for you to be praying for them. Uh, if you're sharing uh, with your neighbor, looking across, you'll find that there are different dates. Not everyone has the same date. We're asking you to pray for the team different days of the week. And so uh, read, read there, you'll see a day of the week and what, what you're being asked to pray for. And then the person next to you will also be praying for the team as well. But on the back of it, uh, we have an outline for the sermon this morning. Uh, the sermon called False Accusations out of Genesis chapter 39. The first question I want to ask you this morning is everywhere we look, we see sin contaminating God's beauty. So how can we be morally pure in a mostly polluted world? When we look around and we see what God has created, uh, the way that God has intended for us to act and behave, we see things getting more and more contaminated. What looks like at the surface, a It wouldn't have looked that way to you probably. But to me, it looks like, oh, that's a nice drinking source over there. That water coming out of the pipe I'm going to go have a drink out of that. That water being very contaminated. Uh, The the idea of that is the world that we live in is increasingly contaminated. How can we be morally pure in a polluted world? Will you open your Bibles this morning? Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. There's Bibles uh, in the pews in front of you. Uh, This is the first book of the Bible. And even as I'm saying that this morning, turning to Genesis chapter 39, I do want to be uh, mindful of the fact that not everyone in the room uh, may understand what I'm saying when I'm saying turning to Genesis chapter 39. So uh, just as an overview, remind you again, the Bible is not just one book of a thousand pages. This is a book, it's a library really, if you will. And so we have each of the books of the Bible are are named so that we can find our ways around. And so if you look on... uh, on the screen, and you'll see that I'm in Genesis chapter 39, there's this colon and it looks almost like a time. Uh, people sometimes will think that, that there's a time listed there, but no, it's uh, Genesis chapter 39 is giving us, um, the, the stamp there is letting us know where we can find this passage, just like a Dewey Decimal System or something like that. Actually, nobody knows what a Dewey Decimal System is anymore either. Uh, but Genesis is the first of 66 books. And we're in Genesis chapter 39 this morning. Uh, That takes us to the chapter, and then the number after that is the verse. And we'll be starting Genesis 39, verse 1. I don't want to assume that you already know that. Uh, We want to get you there uh, together. And so we're following the life of a young man named Joseph. We're following the life of a young man named Joseph. Uh, We learned last week about his story in Genesis chapter 37, and how he was thrown into a pit by his brothers and he was thrown there left to die. And then in a cruel way, they decided, you know what, instead of leaving him there to die, they threw a rope down to him, pulled him back out, and sold him off as a slave. And then to even uh, make the wound that much deeper, they took his coat, the thing that would be uh, distinguishable to him as Joseph, tore it apart, dipped it in blood, and took it back to their father and said, your son is dead. And they grieved with him, and they watched their father go through that anguish, thinking that his son was dead and they allowed him to believe that and just kept perpetuating the lie. In Genesis chapter 39, we learn about what has happened to Joseph. And so just like we see today, this contamination of what God has created beautiful, we see in this family a very contaminated, a very ugly and polluted family. What they are going through is a nasty, nasty thing. Uh, We did skip over, it looks like we're skipping over Genesis chapter 38. I want to kind of summarize for you what has happened since we were together last time. So we're not going to skip over it, we're just going to summarize it. So Jacob's son Judah, he's the third son of one of the four wives of Jacob. Let me say that again. He is the third son of one of the four wives of Jacob. Would you not agree that there's problems already just with me making that statement? judah the third son has three of his own sons uh, the first marries a canaanite woman named tamar tamar was a woman from canaan and they were told not to marry uh, them this pagan nation but he married them anyway and so this first son is so wicked that god strikes him down dead And so this woman, Tamar, the wife of uh, him, is now left without a husband. And in that culture, that puts her in a very compromising position. And also in that family, they had decided part of that culture would be if an older son dies, that the next in line's responsibility is to marry that woman. And so the second son of Judah marries uh, this woman, Tamar. And he too is sinful and despicable, and God strikes him down as well. And so now two sons have died uh, for this uh, woman, Tamar. Tamar, her two husbands have died, and according to the culture of the day, it's now the responsibility of the family to provide her another husband, the third son. Uh, This third son was just uh, not marrying age yet. He's a very young man at that point. And so Judah promises that he would be her husband, uh, but as he grows up and gets older, he kind of forgets about her, chooses not to get around to the fact of marrying her off. So now Judah, the father-in-law, and, uh, is now a widower, widower himself, and he falls into the sin of hiring prostitutes. And so he goes to this area where he hires a prostitute, and Tamar hears of this, and she disguises Tamar, his daughter-in-law, disguises herself as a prostitute and finds him there, and he hires her and sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant because of it. Later, when Judah, the father-in-law, finds out that his daughter-in-law is now pregnant outside of marriage, he wants her to be executed, wants her to be killed, wants her to be burned for her sin, even though he doesn't know her identity, and Tamar is pregnant. And she says, oh, yes, it's true, I am pregnant, but by the way, you are the father, and so in this whole process, do you see what is going on here? The, the corruption, the filth, the pollution that is within this family. And even in finding it out, Judah looks at the situation and says, oops, my bad. Like in all of that, like this is something that you would watch on, on a horrible TV program that kind of tries to mix all the family stories together. And like, and by the way, you're the father and everybody in the crowd gasps. And some reason this morning, as I even share it with you, we go, yeah, yeah, I remember that. heard that before. Or you're confused by even what I'm talking about, and that's understandable as well. This is what sin does to what God has created. If you've ever been in the backyard working and you, and you have your garden hose and, and you work with it for two seconds, and all of a sudden what was just a standard garden hose all of a sudden it's just, it's just in this ball, this knot. And you cannot believe how quickly it knotted itself up. How did that happen. That's what sin does to what God has created, it contaminates God's beautiful thing, ties it all up a knot and we can't seem to pull it out, it gets so complicated. So how can we be morally pure in a polluted world? It's really about choices, the choices that we make. I chose to get down in the ditch and drink from a PVC pipe that who knows where that water was coming, some vile bacteria that I ingested into my system, I made the stupid choice. To do that, life is about choices. How can we be morally pure in a polluted world? Here are four choices today that you must make. Choice number one, this is your first fill-in if you're following that outline. Let's uh, work together through this. Choice number one, rise to the challenge. We live in a polluted world. We live in in what is being contaminated daily. Rise up to the challenge. Now we're in Genesis chapter 39 beginning in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, was the captain of the guard. He bought him from the Ishmaelites who had been taken there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of Egyptian master, Potiphar. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all of the own, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. Joseph was the personal assistant to this Egyptian Potiphar. And over time he began to manage more and more and more of his household, his fields, <coughs> the things that his business was up to. Potiphar is allowing Joseph to handle all of those things. So if we look at a timeline here, Joseph is about 17, we, we find in Genesis 37 that he was 17 years old, and he is 30 later when we find that Pharaoh promotes him, uh, we, when we learn that story in Genesis chapter 41, we'll be there next week. So if we look at that timeline, we see that Joseph was in Potiphar's house for 11 years. He's in Potiphar's house for 11 years. It took 11 years for the full measure of God's blessing to be accomplished in Joseph's 11 years is a long time. 11 years is a very long time. And many times we think that if there's an advancement from God or the blessings of God, they're not in our mindset something we're going to think about over an 11 year period. It's something that we think we're going to get or receive or see this week, this afternoon, right now. Sometimes this is the case, but not normally. Normally God allows good things to be developed over time, over long periods of time. Uh, Human children have the longest developmental time in the womb of any of the mammals. Why? Because there's a beautiful thing that is being born there. In the world of plants, it takes many years for an acorn to become an oak, even though a squash can grow almost overnight. Good things take time. God's blessings often take time. Potiphar leaves all that he has in Joseph's hand. It means that Joseph was a hard worker. When he came to Egypt, when he is brought there, he's at a great disadvantage. If you think about it, he's coming from a foreign culture. He's coming from an entirely different leadership structure. And it means that he was at a disadvantage of language, of culture, of customs, and of doing business. He would have to get up early. He'd have to stay up late in order to learn the Egyptians' ways and do a good job. He grew up watching other people work. If you remember, he is one of 12 brothers and he was never responsible for doing any of the physical labor. He was always in a responsibility of overseeing. And so what happened to him is this crisis is that he accepts God's transforming work in his life and learns how to work hard, learns how to do things well. And in that process, the way that he was raised gives him great administrative skills that he further develops in this process. He rose to the challenge. If we are going to be morally pure in a polluted world, we are going to have to rise to the challenge. You may feel ill-equipped to do so. You may feel like the deck is stacked against you, but you are going to have to make the choice to rise to the challenge. Choice number 2, refuse to compromise. Choice number 2, if we are going to live pure in a polluted world, we are going to have to refuse To compromise. In this story, and we're going to deal with the story here of Potiphar's wife and the way that she tries to seduce Joseph. It may seem extreme to you for us to dig in here, but the reality is that within the church, 50% of our marriages end in divorce. That means half of this room, if you want to divide it down the center and you want to divide it across, half of this room potentially, statistically, is going to fall into the sin that we are dealing with here in this passage this morning. That half of you are affected by what is going on in this passage. We must make the choice to refuse to compromise. Now Joseph, verse 6, was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said to him, come to bed with me. But he what? He refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master, Potiphar, does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you, his wife, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he what? He refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend his duties and none of his household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. Joseph He's in his late teens, in his early 20s. He's a good-looking guy. He's there. He's been a rich kid with a great future, and he's been snatched out of his home and sold off as a slave because of the betrayal of his own brothers. Now he is a slave with no future where he had been at the top of the food chain in his world. He's lonely. He's separated from his family, from his homeland. He has no one to share his life with. No one to celebrate his maturity as he's beginning to uh, get more responsibility in this job. Is no father to throw his arms around him and say, you're doing a great job. I'm proud of you, son. There's no brothers around that he can wrestle with or play with or have a good time with. Uh, there is no mother to cry over him. He is old enough to be married And yet there is no one who is going to look for a wife for him except maybe Potiphar who would have to buy his freedom for him and it would be really financially foolish of him to do that. Why would he free the man who is making him all of this money as his slave? There is no hope for him here. His self-pity could overwhelm him and be a perfect setup for temptation. Potiphar's wife notices how well-built and handsome it says here in Scripture. Imagine how she comes on to him. She says, what a man you are. Look how strong you are. Look how intelligent you are. Look what you're doing with this business. Look what you're doing with our household. You must be lonely, and you're such a good-looking guy. Why be unappreciated? Why would you stay a slave? Come into the bed with me. And if Joseph had allowed himself to feel that self-pity, to feel as though he was unappreciated in his role as a slave. He might have found himself in a position wallowing in self-pity, and when she approaches him, finds it hard to resist. Do you see that the deck seems to be stacked against him? What do you know about self-pity? What do you know about temptation Maybe your life hasn't played out the way that you drew it up. Maybe you feel like people are out to get you. Maybe you feel like you should be prospering and less deserving people as you look around seem to be getting all the attention. They seem to be getting the promotion at work. They seem to be getting uh, the relationships with other people that you were looking for. And it seems like no matter what you do that someone else is getting the leg up and you just deserve better. Maybe this thing, even though wrong as it might be, maybe this thing would be enough to give you an advantage. It might make you feel better. It might make you feel good. It might make you happy for once. Since doing the right thing for all these years has turned out to be so disappointing. Self-pity will make us vulnerable to temptation. Self-pity will make you vulnerable Vulnerable to temptation. You must choose to refuse to compromise. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. This is Joseph saying, no one in this house is greater than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against who? God. He's not looking at his position. He's not looking at his priority structure. He is looking at the one thing that matters, and that is God's standard for his life. Joseph refused to compromise. Joseph refused to compromise. He knew that this sin was not just about him, but it was about God's plan for his life. And after 11 years trying to wear him down. Understand that. Eleven years that Potiphar's wife has been trying to wear him down, asking him daily. And she gets to a point where suddenly the house is empty. It would appear that he actually had set things in a way that this would not happen normally. It's out of the ordinary. He had set the work pattern so that he would never be put in this compromising position. And somehow she had orchestrated the situation where now he was in a compromised state. What is he going to do? To do, Joseph refuses her. One of my favorite stories, and you may have heard this before, is of a fluent aristoc- arist- aristocratic—that's the word I'm trying to get out—I wrote it down, but I can't say it. Woman who reviews resumes from potential drivers for her Rolls Royce. I don't have a Rolls Royce. That sounds pretty nice, right? And so she's got a driver who is going to drive this very expensive vehicle. She has three different men come in uh, who are going to be her driver. And she asks them, I said, if you were driving my rolls," rolls, I don't even know how to say it correctly. There's this brick wall next to her driveway. She says, how close do you think you could get my car to this brick wall without scratching it? And the first man responds. He goes and he takes a look at it, walks up and down, takes a look down through. He says, I think that I could come within a foot of that brick wall without damaging your rolls. And the second man, she said, that's fine. So she goes to the second man, asks him, is there in the interview process? She takes him down through there. He looks down through, sees the turn that he has to make at the end. He says, I think I can get within six inches of the wall and your car will be perfectly fine. There won't be any scratches, nothing to worry about. I'm a good driver. You have no concern. She asks the third man, same question, same process. Takes him out, looks at the driveway, looks at the brick wall. How close do you think that you can get when you come down through here without scratching my car, without damaging my car? Without hesitation, he says, Ma'am, I do not know how close I could come to that wall without damaging your car, but I would stay as far away from the wall as I possibly could. He's the one who gets the job. Why? Because he's staying as far away from danger and damage and possible. When addressing sexual temptation, when dealing with the way that pride works in our lives, the way that sin tries to infiltrate our hearts, when dealing with that, you have to be aware that we need to stay as far away as we possibly can without getting scratched. Stay as far as we can. How can we be morally pure in a polluted world? Refuse to compromise. Third choice that we have to make is to run for your life. There are times where we just have to run away. Get as far away from the situation as possible. No matter how many consequences there might be for that, no matter what is at stake, getting out of that situation is the very best thing you can do. Verse 12, she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran from the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called for her servants. Look, she said, and this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her all the way until her master, Potiphar, came home. Then she told him this story, this tale, that Hebrew slave you brought us came here to make sport or make a fool of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me. He ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. All of a sudden, this Potiphar is left holding the bag or or holding the cloak as the case would mean, this pile of dirty laundry. What is she going to do? She can't admit that she has been chasing after Joseph all of this time. She can't admit the fact that she has been trying to get him to sin with her, trying to get him to cheat on her husband with her. Now, so she pulls the race card here, and she calls him this Hebrew slave who tried to rape her. She goes after him in a way that he would not be able to fight back. Verse 19 of his particular interest, this verse reads, Now when his master heard the words of his wife, his anger burned. Specifically, the way that it's written. As we think about, curiously speaking, in Potiphar's reaction to this situation, the fact that it says his anger burned, we don't actually know who his anger is burning towards, whether it is towards Joseph or towards his own wife. I would suggest, in looking at this passage and reading through it this week, uh, that his wife's slander, as he's looking at it, his own motives, and, and looking at the way that Joseph lived his life, his proven trustworthiness, the fact he'd been there for 11 years as a competent slave, he'd given more authority to, his knowledge of his wife's character, or the lack thereof of what his own wife was like. Knowing all of that, I think that his, ar- arguably, his anger is burning towards his wife. Why? Because this puts him in a difficult position. He can't discount what his wife is saying without publicly humiliating her. Or even if he is certain that she is lying, what he does is he tries to take a position against Joseph, which is as minimal as possible, and still retain the family's honor. Potiphar says, took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He was there in jail. What Joseph was being accused of, falsely accused of, was a capital offense. Rape was a capital offense. He is a slave. There's no question in my mind that he would have been executed on the spot. But this milder punishment would suggest that Potiphar does not believe his wife in the least. You don't hear Joseph trying to defend himself. You don't hear Joseph going to court trial. You don't hear any of that. What happens is Potiphar looks over the situation, realizes what happened. He knows his, uh, he knows Joseph's character and he knows his wife's character. And he is truly angry with his wife and has found a way to punish Joseph. He should have been executed on the spot, no questions asked. In fact, the the king's prison was a a space that was supposed to be for political prisoners, not a slave. He should have never been thrown into that prison. The other thing that I noted, this observation, look at this. The prison that he puts him in is literally in the basement of Potiphar's house. Go back, look at the beginning of chapter 39. Chapter 39, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt... Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, was the captain of the guard. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. We're going to get into next week's uh, passage. It will be chapter 40. But turn over there for just a minute. I want you to see what happens when you look in chapter 40. Chapter 40 and verse 2. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. He put them in the custody, what, of the house of the captain of the guard in the very same prison where Joseph was confined. He takes him from the penthouse suite and moves him down to the basement. It would beg, I beg to differ with you to think that he believed his wife. He put him in this prison so he could keep him close. There was probably times when the stock market was fluctuating and he went down and he asked Joseph, what do you think I should do with my investments? Uh, There are times where he was having trouble with managing the household, managing the servants, and how do I deal with this personality? He's going to go down and he's going to talk to Joseph and ask him what he should do. Potiphar is a very shrewd man. So in reality, Joseph's imprisonment by Potiphar was probably the greatest answer to prayer that he has. When he's saying, God, Lord, protect me from this woman. He is in the safest spot he could possibly be now. He is behind bars. She can't get at him. The prison was God's chosen location to further develop Joseph's leadership skills in the setting of a very divine future appointment that he would have with Pharaoh. But it was not an easy time. Turn in your Bibles quickly. Right in the center of your Bibles is is Psalm, the book of Psalms. Psalm 105 talks about Joseph. 105. Keep your finger where we are in Genesis chapter 39. But Psalm 105, beginning in v- verse 16, it says this. Psalm 105, beginning in verse 16. It says, he called down the famine, this is speaking about God, he called down the famine on land, destroyed all their supplies of food, and he sent a man before them, Joseph, who had been sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons, until what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. This should also remind us of another principle. Those who resist temptation are not, are rarely rewarded by the world. He resists temptation. He refuses to compromise. He runs away, but he is not going to be rewarded for that. He still is in prison. The shackles are still bruising his ankles. His neck is still in shackles. By overcoming temptation, though, Joseph proves that personal integrity, promoting spiritual maturity, will prepare you for a fuller opportunity. Let me say that one more time. Having personal integrity, promoting spiritual maturity will prepare you and I for a fuller opportunity. Choices we must make if we are going to be pure in a polluted world. First choice is to rise to the challenge. Second, to refuse to compromise. Third, to run for your life. Here's the last choice, the fourth choice this morning. is to find rest in the Lord. Find rest in The Lord, continuing in verse 20, we read, But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. In the New Testament, we read in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is speaking. And if, if, it's, if you're looking in your Bibles, you have a red letter Bible. This is the words of Jesus. And he says this, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Joseph is weary. Joseph is burdened. Joseph has been through the ringer. Joseph has been lied about. Joseph has been betrayed. Joseph has been put into a compromising situation that he did not ask for, and he has been punished for it. He's gone through all of that. He is weary. He is worn down. All that you are weary and burdened, Jesus says, I will give you rest. God will give you rest. The Lord will give you rest. Come and sit at my feet. The Lord was with Joseph. If you've got your Bible open there to Genesis chapter 39, use your pencil. There's, there's one in the, in the uh, pew in front of you. Pull out a pencil, use a circle, a square, whatever you want to do. In my Bible, I've got it marked up. Uh, you can see here with, with squares and circles going back and forth all over it just to kind of connect the dots for you. Uh, Genesis chapter 39, verse 2. Box this. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Put a box around that. The Lord was with Joseph. The, he is resting in the Lord the Lord was with Joseph. That's in verse 2. If you look down in verse 21, you see it again. The Lord was with Joseph. Box it, square it, and then just, just connect those dots. Connect those th- two things together and look at all the different connections you'll see following that. In Genesis chapter 39 verse 2, it says, The Lord is with Joseph, and Joseph found favor in the sight of Potiphar. Over in verse 39, 21, it says, Joseph found favor in the sight of the prison warden. In verse 2, it says, Joseph was put, uh, that Potiphar put Joseph in charge of everything. Down to 21, 22, it says, the warden put Joseph, what? In charge of everything. Back in 2 and 3, it says, the Lord blessed Joseph's work in the penthouse and made him able to prosper in everything that he did. At the end of the chapter, the Lord blessed Joseph's work in the prison and did what? He made everything that he did prosper, gave him success, rest in The Lord. Joseph made some choices to be morally pure in a world that is mostly polluted. What were the results of those choices? I do need to be clear what his choices did not do, what his choices did not do, because you need to hear this this morning, it did not keep him from being hated by his brothers. It did not keep him from being sold as a slave. It did not keep him from the most powerful temptation. It did not keep him from being falsely accused. It did not keep him from being in prison. It did not keep him from being disappointed. What were the results of choosing to live morally pure in a polluted world? It kept him from sin. And it caused him to see adversity in a new light. Genesis chapter 50, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And it gave him, and it gave him victory in all circumstances. Even under false accusations. Even under the worst of situations, God gives him victory. This morning as the band comes forward, As we close this morning, if you've got in front of you one of those connection cards, there's also another sheet of paper there in front of you. It's, or excuse me, there's a connection card there in front of you. We ask you to respond to what God is speaking to you this morning, to write your name down, to write a decision that you're making this morning, to allow us to follow up with you. Just this week, I had the opportunity to be able to follow up with someone who had filled something out on a card months and months and months ago, and we finally connected this week, and we got to talk through what Jesus meant in his life. And you know what happened? Through that process, God is at work. Over the time, that dialogue carried on, and this young man accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Would you follow up this morning? Allow us to dialogue. Allow us to have a conversation about what is God working on in your life life. For many of you, the choice needs to be to rise up to the challenge. You know what you're up against, you see it in front of you, and you're scared. And you need to rise up to the challenge and realize, no, I'm not ready for this, but God has put me in this situation at this time to take some leadership and be responsible for living pure in a polluted world. Some of you need to refuse to compromise. Young men, young women, you need to choose and refuse to compromise. God's desire for each of us is that we would be physically, morally, and spiritually pure. Thirdly, the choice to run for your life, that situation you're in right now. Maybe you've already gone past the mark. Maybe you're living in the gray, and God is telling you to get out it could be sexual temptation that you're dealing with. It could be something entirely different. You need to run for your life. When I say run for your life, Joseph is only alive. We only hear the story about Joseph because he ran out. He got as far away as he possibly could from that sin. I'm looking for God to give you victory. Some of you need to choose to find rest. You're weary. You're broken down. You're burdened this morning. Will you choose to find rest in the Lord? That's not going to change your situation. It's not going to change your circumstance. It's going to change your perspective.